19, verses 16 and 17, our subject, slander. Leviticus 19, verses 16 and 17. Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. This passage is of particular importance because it is often used by those who deny that what Moses is giving us is literally law. They see it merely as law counsel. And so this text is commonly cited to state that this is an injunction, a moral injunction against doctrine, that it has nothing to do with the civil law. Now, is this true? The law here states, Thou shalt not go up as a tail-bearer among thy people. It can be translated also, because the same word is so translated elsewhere, Thou shalt not go up as a slanderer among thy people. The word is literally in Hebrew, slander, or slanderer. Then it goes on to say, Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the law. That second part of the verse has reference to those cases where in a trial false witness involves the life of a man. And the point here is that all false witness in any case does affect the life of a man. Then verse 17 is referred to by our Lord when he declares that it is the duty of believers when a fellow believer is involved in an offense to go to him first and then take it to the court of the church or the court of the law. Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17 echo this clearly citing it as a procedure which is a preliminary to law. If a person does not take the rebuke and make amends for restitution, then he is to be as a heathen and a publican, be given over to the processes of law. As a result, our scripture very clearly gives us not a, merely a moral injunction against false witness, but a law against slander. It is interesting to see how it was regarded. It was treated as law. All through the history of Israel, these verses were on the statute book. The lawyer, the rabbi, commentators all treated them as law, law of the state because the law of God. Ginsburg's comment is very interesting on these verses, and I quote, 
this dangerous dangerous habit, which has ruined the character and destroyed the life of many an innocent person, was denounced by the spiritual authorities in the time of Christ as the greatest sin. Three things they declared remove a man from this world and deprive him of happiness in the world to come. Idolatry, incest, and murder. Rander surpasses them all. It kills three persons with one act. The first who slanders, the person who is slandered, and the person who listens to the slander. Hence the ancient Chaldee version of Jonathan translates this clause. Thou shalt not follow the thrice accursed tongue, for it is more fatal than the double-edged devouring sword. Unquote. It is interesting to see how seriously in Old Testament times false witness was regarded by God-fearing Israelites. We have in the comments of Ben Sirach perhaps the most interesting book in the Apocrypha and the superior book, simply the reflections of a God-fearing man on the law. We have in Ben Sirach this statement, and I quote, First the whisperer and double tongue. For such have destroyed many that were at peace. A backbiting tongue hath disquieted many and driven them from nation to nation. Strong cities hath it pulled down and overthrown the house of great men. A backbiting tongue hath cast out virtuous women and deprived them of their labor. Whoso hearkeneth unto it shall never find rest and never dwell quietly. The stroke of the whip maketh marks in the flesh, but the stroke of the tongue breaketh the bones. Many have fallen by the edge of the sword, but not so many as have fallen by the tongue. Well is he that is descended from it, and hath not passed through the venom thereof. Who hath not drawn the yoke thereof, nor hath been found in her bands? For the yoke thereof is the yoke of iron, and the bands thereof are as bands of brass. The death thereof is an evil death, the grave thereof were better than it. It shall not have rule over them that fear God, neither shall they be burned with the flame thereof. Such as forsake the Lord shall fall into it, it shall burn in them and not be quenched. It shall be set upon them as a lion with thorns, and devour them as a leopard. Look that thou hedge thy possession about with thorns, and bind up thy silver and gold, and weigh thy words in a balance, and make a door and bar for thy mouth. Beware thou strive not into it, but thou fall before him that fire and waste. This is how the Hebrews regarded false witness. We can see why in their courts of law they treated it literally. The Puritans, because they took the Old Testament seriously, did the same. And in the Puritan era, Gossip was hailed into court and severely punished. But since then, we have come to disregard it. In fact, a folk proverb common among children has a 
that the sticks and bones, stones may break my bones, but angry words could never hurt me. Which is mere bravado, it isn't true. Angry words, slanderous words, nasty words, they do hurt people. They always have. And so the folk proverb is not Now let us look again at the passage. Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer or a slanderer among thy people. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy maker. I am the Lord. Now this is a case of what is known as biblical parallelism. Both clauses deal with the same thing each giving a different sidelight on the same matter. So the first states, do not be a slanderer. The second, do not stand against the blood of thy neighbor. That is, do not murder thy neighbor. The same statement is that false witness is a murder. It is very deadly. It is easily committed, not readily detected and proven, and it involves many people in a very short time. This is why the lawyers of Israel considered it to be a more fearful offense than idolatry, incest, and murder, all of them capital offenses. In verse 17, it goes on to say, if the neighbor or brother is actually guilty of wrongdoing, we must go to them, seek to dissuade them, seek to have them make amends, restitution, or else we become accomplices by our silence. The word brother has reference to a man who is in the covenant. This is the negative formulation of the law, thou shalt not bear false witness, and the negative application. The positive application is that we must bear a true and a responsible witness. This means not only bringing slander to the attention of church and state in godly society, but to conduct ourselves responsibly to speak responsibly. But today, this is no longer a matter of law. As we have seen, slander has disappeared in the courts as anything of significance and libel also. Anarchism is the order of the day. But if God's absolute law is replaced with anarchistic freedom, then meaning is withdrawn from the world. The responsible witness ceases because there's no one to be responsible to. This is the critical point. This law requires that our witness be responsible. But in a world without God, there is no one to be responsible to. Some men say society. But the anarchist says, oh, well, I'm as good as the next man. There is no law that says society is more important than myself. 
Who's going to praise God and tell me that I am to bow down to society? Take away God and you ultimately take away law. You take away responsibility because there is then no one to be responsible to. No God who can absolutely require a man to be responsible to himself and to his world of people. This is a point that many Christians refuse to accept. And yet, the unbelievers are stating this openly. This is declared on many a college campus today. Colin Wilson, an English writer, has stated the implications of anarchism very plainly. He has written, and I quote, I thought I had seen the final truth, that life does not lead to anything. It is an escape from something, and the something is a horror lies on the other side of consciousness. The implications of that when you analyze it are something. What lies on the other side of consciousness beyond that? God. So what is life then? It is an escape from God. This is the way to be alive, to live. Life does not lead to anything, therefore, ultimately, you must escape from life. If life is an escape from something, then it is also an escape from truth, because truth is related to reality. A lie is related to fantasy. As a result, reality is anathema to men interested in escape. If a man, if a church, if an institution, if a society is trying to escape from the realities of, of the world, then the last thing they want is the truth and reality. And as a result, the necessary lie is cultivated by such men. Thus it was that Nietzsche said, the lie was more important than the truth. This is what man needs. But this is not all. Not only does the man who does not live in terms of a responsible witness, first of all, to God and then under God to men, run from reality to a world of fantasy, but he also runs from freedom, because freedom is related to reality rather than to fantasy. Thus, if he is in a world of false witness, he is in a world of fantasy, he is in a world of slavery, not freedom. To seek any kind of escape from reality, as Colin Wilson advocates, is also to escape from freedom. This has been made by the surrealist school of artists into a philosophy. 
The surrealists declare that living with reality is a compromise, that liberty means forsaking the world of man's flesh and blood existence. They have affirmed, to use their expression, the omnipotence of dreams. Every kind of fantasy, every kind of false witness man invents, they affirm, is all the more important. A lie, according to the surrealists, is most important to man because then he is the God, the creator. But this world out there, the world of truth, this is God's world. And you want to escape from God. Dreams, love, this is the area where you're going to find yourself. Because in the world of reality, the world of the true witness, man is exploited by God and he has to find himself to things as they are. This is why we live in a world of false witness today. If men do not believe that God is the absolute sovereign to whom they are totally responsible, the past they're making a false witness. They're going to run from that God into a world of dreams, into the world of the lie. Not many of them are as honest as the surrealists. They don't openly say the lie is the way to escape from God because in the world of the lie we are God. We make that world. But wherever the responsible witness ceases, whether in the life of a man or of a church or of a government, then there is neither the ability to face reality or to be free, then men become chained to the false witness of their own imagination. Living a lie, the unregenerate man has no world ultimately but his life. Marxists are trapped by their lives. They have created a hell. They live in it, and they call it the gate of paradise going to lead to the great utopia of Marxist dreams. The believers in democracy and equality today have created deep and savage class hatred by law. They call it the threshold of peace and equality. The rabbis were right concerning false witness. It is death to the man who utters it and lives by it. It is death to the society and the church which tolerates it. But to avoid false witness, a society must first of all avoid false God. False God read false men. The false witness. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we live indeed in a world of false gods, false men, and false women. Deliver us from this evil generation. And use us, O Lord, to establish thy law words. 
but again we may be a people rejoicing in thee, obeying thee, and magnifying thee. Thus, after this purpose, we beseech thee. In Jesus' name, Amen. Are there any questions now? First of all, with respect to our blessing. Yes. Not now. No, because you see, our Lord said, better to turn the other cheek when you live in a time where the course of law, where there is no godly law order. But supposing we have been living in a Jordan society, you'd go to them and ask them to make amends, and then if they would not, you'd treat them as a heathen and publican and see to it that they were taken to court, and there would have been very prompt punishment. Yes. Yes. When Paul gave the advice to the Corinthians not to go to court against one another, what he said was, should you are in court, the most depraved city in the empire, and you who are the saints of God, are you going to go before these unregenerate to have justice? Aren't you going to settle it amongst yourselves? Are not the saints to govern, that is, to judge the world? So why go to men who are completely evil seeking justice? Our Lord, when he spoke to them about the realities of their situation then, counseled, if they turn the other cheek, if they go to second mile when they were dropped, because they were dealing with evil men. And the best thing, when they were helpless, when they were attractive people, was to cooperate. Yes.
No, that doesn't pertain to that. What uh, turning the other cheek and going the second mile has reference to is when you're dealing with a world of evil, courts that are evil, you don't go to those courts for justice. Now, rendering to Caesar was this. Uh, it, in a sense, you are right, it is related, but it's of a somewhat different uh, nature. They were trying to put uh, Jesus on the spot because many of the people in Israel were already revolutionists. They wanted a revolution to overthrow the power of the Romans, who were a foreign people ruling. And of course, this is what ultimately destroyed them, wiped out the country, destroyed Jerusalem totally. And it was utter folly for them to dream of overthrowing the Roman Empire. So, when they came to Jesus to ask him, uh, is it lawful for us to render tribute to Caesar? They were trying to get him to say one of two evil answers, uh, in effect, was going to make him unpopular, they figured. If he says, yes, pay tribute to Caesar, then most of the people will say he's a saint. He's so good. He's cooperating with the enemy. He's an enemy agent. And so on. This would have been the response of the people. But if he said, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then, of course, he would have immediately been arrested as a revolutionist by the Romans. So this was like, in so many other cases, a question asked deliberately by the Pharisees, figuring that any answer he gave was going to wipe him out. And our Lord said, tell me, it's the Christ. And he said, whose image and superscription is on it? The Caesar's. Oh, in other words, Caesar's already here. He's the government now. Wonder unto Caesar the thing that is Caesar. This is Caesar's mind. Pay it to him. He's providing the government. But unto God the things that are gone. So, you see, they, he gave them the sensible answer, but they couldn't nail him on that. And so they turned and left, very disgusted. He slipped out of their trap again. Any other questions? If there are no further questions, yes. Not proper here is changed its meaning. Slanderer. 
If you're telling the truth about somebody, that's not slander. Unless that truth is out of context. Remember I gave the illustration last week of a husband making credit to do about his wife being uh, so stupid with a checkbook and all, when actually she is the more capable one financially of the two of them. Now the fact he was citing endlessly was true. But it was a false witness because it was not the truth about her financial ability. But if a person is a communist, that isn't a, a false witness concerning the body's total nature, you see. If a person has been guilty of serious offenses, I've known cases where good people cover up an evil and somebody else gets stopped. There must be some good about the body. Right. Otherwise, what's the reason that you can't do anything about the body? Unless there is something. Yes. You're warning somebody about something to prevent them from being deluded and duped. But also, you must recognize that for some people, truth is nothing. Truth is nothing. They just don't want it. Yes. I should know that. This doesn't mean I 
I'm not saying no, I won't have, but I should have the knowledge to assess the situation and place them accordingly. Now, it could be if it were ten years ago, it would still be an important fact and should be told. Suppose he had gone into prison for embezzlement and gotten out ten years ago and had been a good workman in all those years and had a number of responsible jobs. But I was considering him for a job that involved handling money. In that case, I should know about it. Perhaps the man like that has a weakness here where finances are concerned. He's irresponsible with money and this would be a dangerous place to put so you see, you have to judge in terms of the situation and in terms of what involves the best welfare, the most responsible behavior on your part and towards others. We don't have too long, but there's one announcement I want to make and some things I'd like to report. This Wednesday at 7.45 p.m. at the Fridmont Home in San Marino, Jerry North will speak to the Christian Current Event Study Group on a Christian perspective of inflation and the market. Then I'd like to report briefly on the Central Seminar, which I attended yesterday in Burlingame in Northern California. Dr. Hans Senholz, that most of you know who he is, was the speaker for an all-day seminar, an extremely important one. He had predicted, some of you recall, in January that the market would get approximately 650. And three months ago, when he set up the date for the seminar, he said by the end of May, it will hit 650. So let's set the seminar for that time, because it will be most he set it up a week ahead to avoid the Labor Day, uh, Memorial Day weekend, so he was just a few points off. But his predictions concerning the future are rather grim. He states that we have been, of course, in a long period of inflation. Radical inflation. During the Johnson administration, we were inflating our money supply at the rate of 15 and 16 percent per year. In 69, we stopped it entirely. We held the line. The result has been we've been moving into a recession because the economy is geared to inflation, not to free market economy. As a result, with the depression staring them in the faces, they have begun to reinflate now. But the rate of inflation is only 5%. 5% is not enough. When the old rate was 15 and 16%, it would have to probably be more than the Johnson rate to have any effect. So he feels the market will go down further, that it will probably by the first of next year drop below 500, 
that it is very close to a panic situation now and could, tomorrow, this week, next month, develop into a real panic and drop 90 to 100 plus. He feels it is possible we could go into an inflationary kind of depression in the near future in which one force, the labor force, would be out of work. But, unlike the other depression, there would be no drop in prices. And there would be more inflation. Now, we can successfully, sometime by late 71 or 72, get back into reinflation for another boom before we have the real class and move steadily into a controlled economy in which there will be the shortages that come as a result of control, in which the salesman will disappear because there is no work to sell, and the buyer who crowns around to find things for his company will replace the sales. He feels there's a real possibility that it will lead to such radical economy that the cities will be places of death. That is the case of Rome, which over some period of time, during the days of the Roman Empire, dropped from a population of 2 million to 50,000. He said it will be far worse this time because the possibilities of dispersal from the cities are very limited now. There's too many in the city. He said this is a real possibility. For a long period of grinding control. And steadily lower standard of living. He felt also that there was probably going to be Dollar prices before the end of this year and a real run on gold. The silver, a bit for a pleasant uh, situation would only tag along, but the immediate prospect was not too strong for silver, rather weak. It would just tag along after gold. But that a gold run would probably come as the world saw that we were going to reinflate. His picture thus was a rather grim one, the grimmest one he has ever portrayed. He saw no possibility of any change in the picture without a change in the heart of the people, a religious change, a basically religious one. He cited the last Calcutian report on anarchy, incidentally and agreed thoroughly with it. But this is the picture that Dr. Stenholz gave. Are there any questions yet? Yes, his uh, predictions of last year's when he spoke at Hotbury Farm in this January in Glendale very definitely uh, inaccurate. He's had an amazing rate of accuracy over the years. 
I first heard him in 1962. I kept my notes over the years and had them put away somewhere, and I checked them once, I think about January before the meeting. And uh, his accuracy has been very remarkable. Yes.
Oh. 